0: Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, thank you to our worship leaders. I especially like that last song. As it talked about vine and branches, about how we only produce if we abide in the vine. And then the word picture of he is the living well. It doesn't do any good for us to bring a canteen of our own drink. We need to draw from the well that is our, our Savior and his spirit. I also really enjoyed that uh, children's sermon this morning. I've told people you can always tell I'm on the level because the bubble is in the middle. Hang around church long enough and you will find that we develop our own slang and shortcuts. The Bible speaks of hedges and protection, but the phrase hedge of protection does not appear in the Bible. Yet we often pray that God will protect our children or missionaries by surrounding them with a hedge of protection. You won't find the word Trinity or the phrase once saved, always saved because these have developed as shortcuts to describe complex biblical propositions. Other slang you may hear are, he went forward, or she started to backslide. These describe a person who publicly responds to God's prompting at the end of a service, or someone who is not living out the Holy Spirit's prompting as much as he or she once did. Went forward is a code for a person demonstrating repentance. And backslide is to allow sin to take root in a person who was once faithful. The central theme of Galatians is that backsliding from grace towards any other moral system is sin. You may not drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do and still be in sin if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. The last two chapters of Galatians have ruled out any form of being justified by legalism. We can't be declared righteous because we followed the rules. Yet it has been a 2,000-year problem that those who absolutely affirm a person cannot be justified by following the rules somehow backslide into an attitude of sanctification by rule-following. Yes, I was saved by God's grace, but I'm going to become a good Christian by my own effort and by my own abilities, and that which I am able to achieve. I believe in grace for salvation, but I achieve grace for sanctification. See, it's important for us to define what I mean by legalism. I've used the word here a few times. Legalism is the difference between believe or achieve. It's the difference between God's grace or my pace. It's the difference between God's credit and my merit. It's not a matter of how we behave, but it is a matter of why we behave. There are several reasons that you may wish to drive the speed limit. Listen for a couple of amens from our law enforcement who are here. There are several reasons that you would want to drive the speed limit. One, to avoid a fine. Two, to avoid the insurance points accumulating. Three, to stay in good graces with the sheriff and the warden's department. Fourthly, to be safe. To avoid damaging others. To keep mom from taking away your car. See, there are lots of reasons to drive the speed limit. So I'm not saying we are to stop observing that rule. What I am saying is, it matters why you keep the rule. There are several reasons to remain sexually pure. There are several reasons you can choose to attend church. There are several reasons to be honest with your words. There are several reasons not to use your fist or weapons when you become angry. See, when I say legalism doesn't produce sanctification, I'm not saying that a moral life is useless. I'm saying that why you behave morally matters. Are you behaving in a certain way because you think it will impress God? Or are you behaving morally for one of the many other reasons to do the right thing in the right way? We teach our children here at Flint Hills Community Church that sin is anything we think say or do, that displeases God. So using that definition, do you think God is displeased when His grace and His Son are diminished or ignored? If we ignore God's grace and think we do it ourselves, I think that displeases God. The scripture just read uses extreme labels and rhetorical question to expose how hideous this sin of backsliding really is. It's To backslide into a legalistic morality is hideous to God. I do not believe it is a stretch to say slipping into a legalistic attitude is sin for at least four reasons that Paul identifies in these five verses. The first is backsliding from grace to legalism denies the Savior's death. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I look at these words and I see as we talk about denying God's grace, the first thing does is um, Paul uses some really harsh language that causes us to ask, did he just say that out loud? Did he really just call them foolish? Oh, foolish Galatians. See, gullible is not an attractive quality. As an example, did you know it is impossible for a human being to touch his or her elbow with their tongue? Statistics show that most of you will try that sometime before bed tonight. (laughs) Comedians like to make a career out of derogatory references to the naive. You might be a redneck if... Here's your sign. And a person who is not a redhead or a brunette walks into a room. See, naive is one type of foolish. But this word, when he says, you foolish Galatians, it's it's the negative of the word to know. You unknowing Galatians. Paul is not saying you are naive or that you've been fooled once by a trickster. But what Paul is saying by calling them foolish Galatians, he says, You know better, but you have fallen hook, line, and sinker. You know better, but you have chosen to stick your head into the sand. Foolish here is not simply being naive. Conspiracy theorists, and you can define that however you wish, are generally annoying. The climate extremists on both sides are annoying. Those who ignore the science of gender and human genetics are annoying. Let's not add crucifixion deniers to the list. He says, you foolish Galatians. You know that the death of Christ has been explained to you thoroughly. Now, don't act as if you haven't heard of it. He actually goes on to say, who has bewitched you? When I I read this word bewitched and, and consider what had happened in the mind of these people who used to, be in great fellowship with God's grace, and have now slipped into some other form of righteousness or religious life. I got to thinking of a hypnotist. Have you ever seen a hypnotic entertainer? I I used to work for a company, and that company hired a man to come to our company-wide party and hypnotized about a half dozen of my co-workers and their spouses. And to me, one of the most amazing feats was how he suggested to those who were hypnotized that it was super cold in the heated room. And they began to shiver simply at the suggestion. But it wasn't really cold, but... Because of the hypnotic suggestion, because they had been bewitched, they acted as if the room was cold. And then they were told that the room was overly warm. So they started unbuttoning the top of their shirt and started rolling up their sleeves and they started fanning themselves when the condition of the room had not changed one bit. A second impressive thing that I saw with this guy and his act was how he convinced someone who was generally very, very timid that she was the greatest singing entertainer alive. And because she was the greatest singing entertainer, she sang with great enthusiasm, although all of us who had worked with her knew her to be quite timid. See, this bewitching, this hypnotic suggestion was a process where he convinced them to behave contrary to the reality that the rest of us knew. He says, what we know is that Christ has been portrayed as crucified. Paul uses these very blunt words of being foolish and being bewitched because the truth had already been made clear. The word for portrayed here is the idea to set forth in a public notice. It's not just that I have become aware, but we have broadcast the fact that Christ is crucified. It's the idea that newspaper ads have run, billboards have been placed, we've put on the bumper sticker, we've announced the podcast, the media and radio and television. It's been sent out on direct mail, it's been tweeted, it is on Snapchat, it is on TikTok, Facebook and YouTube. So don't act as if you've heard that Jesus has not been crucified. But the Galatians, no matter how much it had been publicly portrayed and put on notice, they are now acting contrary to the truth. And because they're contrary to the truth, they are denying the crucifixion of God's Son. The gospel that got you is the same gospel that keeps you. And it cannot exist apart from the crucifixion of Christ. If your sanctification is based upon hard work or doing good things, if your sanctification, if your becoming holy is based on anything apart from the fact that Christ has gained the victory over sin and death, it's not the gospel. See, Paul is using every rhetorical device he can think of to underscore that a backslide must have happened. For you to know the truth and be acting this way, you've slipped into sin. This backslide is not only horrendous because it denies what they knew that Jesus had done, But this backslide is horrendous because it impacts the third person of the triune God. In verses 2 and 3, backsliding from God's grace to some form of legalism undermines the Spirit's work. It undermines the very fact that it is God's Spirit that gives us sanctification. It's God's Spirit who makes us like Christ. Abiding, drinking from the well, staying in the the vine, so that we are simply the branch, are God's spiritual life-giving words, not our own effort. How did you get into the kingdom of God is the question in verse 2. How did you get kingdom, to use last week's phrase, simply the Holy Spirit gave it to them. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit convicts and draws people to the gospel, and through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, are people granted the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to do with spiritual gifts, but you become an heir to God's kingdom when the Holy Spirit gives you that right of adoption. How did you get into the kingdom? Verse 2 says it was by the Spirit. So, how do you fit into the kingdom? In verse 3. You somehow think that now it's up to you to do the right thing. God got me in, but it's up to me to make the most of the experience. Imagine being gifted four tickets to Disneyland. And once you walk through the gates, you get the quick impression that just being here is not the end. The kids want mouse ears. Your daughter wants a Cinderella wand. Maybe your son wants a Cinderella wand. I don't know. The wife wants a family picture with the duck. You pay $8 for a hot dog, $5 for a soda pop. Suddenly, those free tickets that got you into Disney have now just cost dad a bankroll. And dad is thinking to himself, the admission was covered, but it's up to me to make the experience memorable. And many people approach Christianity the same way. It's up to God's amazing grace and what he did on the cross of Calvary to get me into heaven. But until then, it's up to me to do what will impress others and impress the world. But see, the Spirit of God does not only cause us to be born into the kingdom, the Spirit of God grows us as God's children. Growing in grace is not a matter of attending the right marriage conference, carrying the right leather-bound study Bible, wearing crosses in your ears or around your neck, getting the right spiritual tattoo or wearing the t-shirt. Those things are not growing in grace. Growing in grace is when we allow the same Spirit who adopted you into God's family to nurture you into becoming someone who delights in God's presence, in God's mission. Growing spiritually is allowing God's Spirit to work from within you So that you enjoy God and you enjoy participating with Him in His mission to the world. It has nothing to do with how you behave in a Super Bowl parade. It has nothing to do with if you dip or not. It's allowing God's Spirit to work within you so that you find great pleasure in being in God's presence. I believe that's the root of true revival. It doesn't have anything to do with music. I don't even think it has to do necessarily with how many people are are at the altar. I think true revival happens in the heart where we say, Woe is me, I am broken, I am undone, when I consider what a great and an awesome God He is and how He has loved me, and how He has chosen me, and how He is conforming me to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's revival. And it happens on a personal and an intimate level, and and to slip into some form of, as long as you follow the rules, you'll be okay, is sin, because it displeases God backsliding from grace to legalism ignores God's Son it ignores the work of God's Spirit and it also negates the value of suffering look with me at verse 4 did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain see purpose and motive and results seem important to Paul. He was worried about his own effort being useless back in chapter 2. And now he's worrying that the suffering by the Galatians was for no purpose. The word he, repeat, he repeats is vanity. Because leaving Judaism for the way of Jesus generated all sorts of bullying ...in the first century. Jobs were lost... ...real estate transactions were denied... ...social standing was revoked... ...privileges like food distribution were rescinded... ...and the Galatians endured all that bullying... ...and now they were giving in to the demands that were made by the bullies. If you can't beat them you might as well join them, had become their mantra. Rather than, if we endure to the end, we will be proven right. Their suffering was for nothing if they did not suffer until the end. How severe was the suffering that they were now beginning to ignore? Grant Osborne writes in his commentary on Galatians, He says, if you look back at Acts 13 and 14, there is a great deal of opposition to the gospel. In Pisidian Antioch, the Jews stirred up persecution, and they forced Paul and Barnabas to flee, Acts 13, 50. In Iconium, there was a plot to stone them, and they were forced to leave, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. And at Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Chapter 14, 19 through 20. The suffering that they had gone through was severe, but now they're willing to say, "Eh, maybe not so much. it, It was all useless anyhow. We'll do what the bullies want us to do. Getting stoned and left for dead is too traumatic to act as if it never happened. And finally, backsliding from grace to legalism, it not only denies God's Son, not only denies God's Spirit, doesn't only deny their suffering, but it also denies God's supply. What God wanted to provide for them. God wanted to conform them to the image of Christ. And they substituted their own doing good for God's work within them, I, I I would ask, based upon what Paul says, are you really ready to forego God's comforting spirit and His powerful miracles simply so you can do it your own way? He asks there if. If somehow you can do it on your own and you don't need these gifts that only God supplies, why did we just spend five minutes in pastoral prayer? We spent time in prayer because we believe and we expect God to act in ways that we can't do it ourselves. And so Paul asked them, Are you willing to ignore God's miracles? We gather in prayer because we depend upon God's ability to comfort us in our pain and His power to act in situations that concern us. Notice a phrase that is there in the the Scripture, for he who supplies. He who supplies is the idea of brought to you by these sponsors. He who supplies was actually a theater term. For those who sponsored the theater, those who paid the bills so that they would have costumes, so that they would have food for the actors to eat, so that they could purchase a script. If it were not for he who supplies, if it were not for the sponsors, the show would not go on. And so Paul says... We know that God supplies miracles. We know that God supplies comfort. We know that becoming like Christ is the work of God's Spirit. Are you really ready to ignore all that God wants to supply to try and do it on your own? If we wish to avoid the foolishness of Galatians, as I wrap it up, here are four steps that you can choose to take. To avoid foolishness, we must pursue wisdom. And here are four suggestions for you. The first is, choose to wisely pursue a right view of God. When we view God correctly, Not as that big mean judge in the sky, but as a father who loves us and wants to mature us, and the one who is the source of every good and perfect gift, and the one who wants us to call out to him, Abba, Father. When we view God rightly, rather than the big mean judge, we allow grace to happen within our lives. Not only must we choose to pursue a right view of God, but we also need to choose to wisely pursue a right view of grace. One of my concerns with popular music of many genres is the promotion of what I call the frat boy or the honky-tonk lifestyle. It's the idea that a person can booze it up, get in fights, act immorally on a regular basis as long as he says Jesus every once in a while. You can live like the world as long as you mutter a prayer occasionally or as long as you go to that good old church down the road once or twice a year. You can live however you want during the week and just occasionally show up for church because the man upstairs is going to take care of you. I wish more athletes who mention God in an acceptance speech would recognize the same God is present in their locker room celebrations, in their relationships with their girlfriends. See, we can't make light of God's grace I'll, I'll do whatever I want, and then God's grace will kind of fill in the gaps at the end, and we'll be okay. That is not a right view of God's grace. God's grace cost Christ dearly, but it is available to us freely. We must realize that His grace is not only amazing after we sin, but it was costly before we ever sinned. His grace is abundant, sufficient, freely bestowed, but that is not an excuse for us to treat it cheaply. During my lifetime, I have watched opinions change regarding preborn life. Even during my lifetime, what used to be considered a quote unquote illegitimate pregnancy was a consequence to be. ...prevented or hidden. Now... ...anonymous mail-order deliveries can, quote... ...erase any product of conception. Making light of grace. Making light of the... ...call of a righteous God who paid dearly... ...for us to make right choices... We simply say, ah, I'll do what I want to do and deal with the consequences later. It's a cheap view of grace. Thirdly, choose to wisely pursue a right reason for obedience. I told you earlier, there's lots of reasons why you can choose to obey the law or not. And there are a lot of reasons for you to choose to act morally, to be here or not, to obey what God's word says or not. We now can obey because we know he loves us, not in in any way to increase our lovable quotient. I don't obey so that I will be impressive and then it's easier for God to love me. I obey because He already loves me completely with a perfect love. I personally have have had a lifelong struggle with one phrase. It even slipped out a little bit over a week ago in my own life. I too often say, I love you when... I may be pleased when, but love to be God's love is not, I love you when you obey and I don't love you when you disobey. God's love is not, I love you when you go the extra mile, but not when you meet the bare requirements. God's love is full and rich and amazing. And so I am working in my life with gentle reminders from my wife and from my children, to get rid of, I love you when you, to be a picture of God's love for us. Yes, we still expect our children to obey, but it's not in order to earn our love. And we expect people to obey God, but it's not in an attempt to earn His love. And finally, We can choose to wisely pursue a right attitude towards others. When I can first see you as a person who is living within the grace and forgiveness of God, I no longer need to impose my expectations on your behavior. If I see you as a recipient of grace, if I see you as a brother or a sister in Christ's kingdom, I don't need to, ex- to impose my morality. I see you as family. And we need to wisely pursue a right attitude towards others so we see them as objects of grace, not as those who need to act according to our Expectations Legalism is like a child playing in the attic who finds a chest of old clothes The child will put on the top hat or the oversized dress They put the pearls around their neck They paint their lips and their eyelids with makeup They try walking in the heels or the boots that are just too big Legalism is like dressing up with tobacco, or alcohol, or language that we've heard some adults use, and so we think it makes us look mature if we use those words. Rather than playing dress up, it's cute when children do it, but it's pitiful, it's sinful when we do it. Rather than play dress up, let us wisely allow the grace of God and the spirit of God to truly make us mature.